0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's another glorious episode of Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I did some research. And I actually tested for a movie about three or four months ago, so that was fun. This week we're doing Dr. Sleep, but more so Stephen King. Here we go. Let's get into it. Stephen King has probably one of the most uh, impressive bodies of works of like working. Authors right now, and he's, he's at sixty. He's in books. The middle of a re- renaissance, I- he's everywhere, all the time. We've already done an episode on him. We did it. Uh, did we do another one? And, and we've and we've got more planned. That's the, <laughs> that's the ridiculous thing here. We've got more planned. It's we just briefly touched on certain elements of
1: his life in it, more so just how he created it. So if you're interested in that, go check out that episode. But this is going to be Doctor Sleep and a pretty good overview of who is this man? Why is he making? what he's doing. Why is it so timeless? Why does he have, well, I guess this year he's had Pet Cemetery, It Too, In the Tall Grass, Castle Rock,
0: and Dr. Sleep. Man. And if you're you're not aware, Dr. Sleep is the sequel to Stephen King's book, The Shining. Now, there was uh, an amazingly famous horror film made after The Shining that was released in 1980, made by uh, Stanley Kubrick. So fast forward to 2013, Stephen King released a sequel to his book titled Dr. Sleep. So now Mm -hmm. we are getting a film adaptation uh, directed by Mike Flanagan, who's directed other things like uh, Oculus, if you've seen that, and the uh, the very popular uh, Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. The differences are that Stephen King is an author who writes
1: books. So The Shining is a book and then Dr. Sleep is a book. Stanley Kubrick notoriously made the movie The Shining very different from the book and Stephen King was not happy with this. Famously unhappy. So how does this guy, Mike Flanagan, make a movie that is a sequel to the, movie, the movie that everybody knows <laughs> but also stay true
0: to the book even though different things happen that affect both worlds? It's quite an undertaking. Yeah. The film is phenomenal. And if you're a fan of Stephen King's work, if you're a fan of uh, Stanley Kubrick's work, please go see this movie. It's not really doing well at box office right now, but nobody's saying it's bad. All the reviews are actually pretty, pretty stellar. Hmm. Um, And I I urge people, if you are at all interested in this one, this one is really floundering right now, and it's really beautiful. The
1: faith in this Mike Flanagan guy comes from he already has made a Stephen King property and it's called Gerald's Game and it came out in 2017 on Netflix. It's based on a Stephen King short story, which most people called unfilmable. It's this guy who takes his his wife to this hotel and they're doing sexy stuff and Mm -hmm. he handcuffs her up to the bed and then he dies. And it's mostly a stream of consciousness, her trapped in the bed, wondering what's happening. Heart attack, I think. Oh God. Yeah, so it's like, Total horror because what's she gonna do? Nobody's gonna find her. Yeah, honey. Basically, like
0: strapped there. That'd be and it's just a short story.
1: So how do they film this thing if it's all her racing thoughts and all the memories of that and all this? Oh man, yeah. But this guy, Mike Flanagan, did it. King loved it. Really? He praised it majorly. So then it makes sense that even though Stanley Kubrick, according to King,
0: floundered The Shining, he would trust this guy to then go ahead and do the sequel. And and I've actually heard uh, King go on record now that the film has come out and saying that he's he actually likes the Kubrick version more now and appreciates the mm-hmm. Kubrick more, version more now, having had Doctor Sleep made now that somehow Doctor Sleep is able to build it does not take away and somehow adds and rounds out a story. To you know that the Mm -hmm. author was unhappy with it. it Somehow balanced it out. Where now, now King is almost saying that, like, I do like the opening, but I I like it as one thing together, like Like a giant six-hour movie. Mm -hmm. So, how did Stephen King? How did he come up with any
1: of this stuff? Why is he one of the most prolific authors of all time? There'll be some interesting Easter eggs, particularly one author that all of our listeners will know that they were on the come up from the start. Stephen King shot through into space. With his success, this other person floundered for quite a bit of time until mm-hmm. much later. But we'll get into who that is and how they're connected and all of that stuff. But first, yeah, with Dr. Sleep, how did it happen? We talked about in the Joker episode how they voted whether or not Robin should live or die. And then in our Nancy Drew episode, it was there was a vote taken before they wrote the book about whether Nancy Drew should break up with her boyfriend <laughs> In the most recent thing. So this and book. They said yes. And they said yes. <laughs> so this book, in 2009, Stephen King posted a poll on his website of whether he should, the next thing he should write should be a sequel to his Dark Tower series or a sequel to The Shining. Dr. Sleep won wow. 5,861 votes to 5,812. So oh, just a wow. little over 50 votes. Yeah. People were like, yeah, you should
0: do a sequel to The Shining. So that's how that. Got started, but oh, it's, that's fascinating. Yeah. And so I'm sure he has to come to Twitter with two, you know, at least an idea that he can do it. You mm-hmm. know, like oh, I could, I, I have, I have this, and I have this. I don't know which one to do. It's interesting to like, yeah, he, like you said, he did have initial concepts
1: for both of these books, and he did write more Dark Tower books, and he did write this. So I think it was just which one should I really go for? Mm-hmm. What are my fans looking for? The what actual do you want next? Yeah. I can do
0: these. Yeah.
1: The initial influence for Dr. Sleep came from a cat. There is, not to spoil anything, but there's a cat in the movie that has particular clairvoyance. And this is based on a real life cat at the Steer House Nurse Center in Rhode Island. This happened in 2005. It was this cat who, the nurse that eventually wrote a book called Making Rounds with Oscar, which came out in 2010 Mm -hmm. about this cat. So this cat at this nursing home was wandering, was kind of annoying, would hiss at people. It was just kind of a therapy cat just around yeah. in, the, in the ward. But it would make its way. And if it was staying with a particular patient for a significant time for like hours, because it was always roaming, that patient then died hours later. Not that it was the cat's fault, but that the cat was sensing right. that that person was going to die. Right. Like And, a would, thunderstorm. Be, and would be by its bedside. Yeah. And this cat Accurately predicted twenty five deaths. Oh my gosh. So they could notify the family members and being oh like, "Oh Ethel, we think Ethel is about to go. Like, come say your last rites. Come hold her hand." And then Ethel would die. And that uh, cat
0: gave so much precious time yeah. to so many people. Yeah. That is phenomenal. And as
1: of two thousand fifteen, Oscar the cat has predicted over a hundred deaths. Oh my To get God. people to come in before it's too late. And who knows that's beautiful. what it is. Yeah, but so he read this article about this and was like, that's got to be something that I've got to use, Wow, this cat. Uh, and then the second thing was most of his recent books before Dr. Sleep, again, going back to the polls, I think mm-hmm. he was trying to figure out what his audience wanted. Because he said his recent books were fun, but they were more like suspense books or they were thrillers or they were these epic things. But he was saying like he wanted to scare – the shit out of people. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, they, they were not balls to the Scare wall. Scared the skate.
0: out of me. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he was like, I, I don't necessarily want to go back because people are being like, he must be touching empty on the old gas gauge, like, <laughs> you know. Um, no, nah, he can still blind. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and especially with sequels, and it's funny because he said the only two exceptions, he's this master writer, the only two exceptions he has for sequels are Huckleberry Finn which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. If you want to know why that's such a great sequel to Tom Sawyer, go listen to that episode. And then the script for the Godfather 2 movie. He's like, is way better than Godfather 1. In his mind, those are the only two sequels that ever hold muster. And so he's like...
0: What about Terminator 2? <laughs> Not hey, according to hey, him. What about Terminator 2?
1: Nope, he hasn't seen it. We'll let him know. Wants to know about we'll some him, sequels. I just, I just <laughs> DM'd him that he needs <laughs> Good, to Good, let that. me know what he says. <laughs> as far as The Shining and what he was looking at with this. Basically, the question, he was like, how come Jack Torrance never tried AA? Like, in the book, he comes in which is why he didn't like Jack Nicholson's portrayal in The Shining. It was like Jack yes, Nicholson they is a crazy Torrance person. Yes,
0: they as a very bitter person. Very, he, I mean, kind of just a jerk from the kind of the get go, and he just is on this decline. And that is, and, and I know that is famously where where Stephen King does not agree about just mm-hmm. where the character is, and and that and that has a lot to do emotionally with where your character is by the third act when they're walking around with an axe trying to chop their family into bits. So. I I can understand where that is a major thing for him. What are you supposed to be feeling? I think you're feeling very different things from the book to the Kubrick uh, film yeah. and then they there was a TV adaptation done in the 90s, which uh, King actually does like a bit. Or he did. He was at more the time. involved in it. Yeah, he was more involved in it, and he likes it a bit more than uh, than the Kubrick version. And that really does readjust the Jack Torrance character to be a bit more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to see what that version is like, that also has has more of that they cut out from the Kubrick film. So it has yeah. like the hedge animals in it which is famous Mm -hmm. you know a famous sequence in the book Um, a big thing that we will get into as far as stephen king's life
1: is how and we've joked about this before is how like he just pulls directly influences from his life in his book it's like everything that he writes is some tortured author who doesn't know what to do next and so for the shining the main character has a ton of alcohol. what a reach yeah (laughs) (laughs) the main character has a ton of alcohol Problems and this angry father, you know, and that's what follows through in Dr. Sleep, where it's this son who's dealing with that trauma of what happened. King never had a father in the house. So you can't look at his life and be like, oh, my dad was crazy because he just never had a dad. Hmm. But as far as him, he's like saying, me as a father. Showing anger to my kids. Oh, afraid of what you might do. Right. And he, and yeah, yeah, Stephen King had troubles with alcohol, which we'll get into, but how it has a tendency to ruin the the hold you have on your temper. He had deviated from a lot of books about kids. His earlier work Hmm. has a lot of kids in it. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, okay, why are you going back to kids? And he had said in an interview that I read, it's because he didn't have kids anymore. Again, Mm -hmm. going off of what you know in your life, his kids were grown up. After they left, it's not as easy to write about those things.
0: yeah, you're not feeling the well, if I don't if mm-hmm. my if my judgment lapses for two seconds, or is my kid gonna end up in the street? you know, like you're not <laughs> thinking on that level, yeah, you know, like uh, as a parent, I can only imagine, but if if you really have to put yourself in the shoes of a parent and all of the anxieties that they have to worry about when they are child caring, yeah. I mean, uh, as a writer, that's what you're thinking. That's what you're feeling. That's what you're in. That's what you're living on day in, day out. I mean, that, that makes total sense to me. So when they're out of the house, I, maybe I can think about other things. These anxieties are relieved. Maybe now I'm starting to think about anxieties, finance, you know, like other Mm -hmm. things. Maybe I'm starting to think about the world and like what, what's happening in the world systems. You know, like your mind shifts as problems enter and exit your life. And um, the problem so, um, seeing of... Seeing that over, yeah. the body, over his body of work is really interesting, actually. And as it relates to Dr. Sleep, now that my kids are gone, what have I made them? <laughs> what have they become? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you, have you become the Frankenstein? You know, like, have you made the monster? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And
1: so that's a, that's a huge part of it. So the, the, the origins of Dr. Sleep, in a nutshell, Oscar the therapy cat, and Stephen King's kids growing up. That's what compelled him Mm -hmm. to write this thing. And then a poll that sealed the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for Twitter. Cool. So now we go into the life of Stephen King, everything you will ever want to know about how he came to be the master of horror and why he loves Maine so much. (laughs) He loves it. He loves Maine, the place, to death. (laughs) Because he was born there in 1947 in Portland at the age of two. As we said, his father disappeared, gone. Disappeared, gone. Left the house. Said they he was going out it. to buy some cigarettes. Never came back.
0: Oh my God! <laughs> they n- he never found out what happened. Actually, Didn't care.
1: much later. No, much later, they realized that this guy lived close by with a new wife and four kids. Oh my God! Stephen King never reconciled with him. Good. He said at a certain point he wanted to just, I don't remember what the exact quote was, but it was like, hit him in the head with a two-by-four. Yeah. You know? And then he saw, He thought later in life, he was like, I'd want to ask him why he did it, and then hit him in the head with a two-by-four. Mm-hmm. But never got, never talked to him, never got that reconciliation. So a lot of the stuff that he's dealing with in his books, *A of the Jack Torrance shining yes. stuff, has to do with fatherhood, or a lack of, or a confusion about it all. The fear of what you might do, the fear of how, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but- Single mom, try, had to pay the bills, had to figure out all this stuff. They yeah. moved a lot as kids. They lived in Wisconsin, Indiana, Connecticut. At the age of 11, ya boy, moving back to Maine. His he was smitten. And this is where we get the start of his writing. So you can read into this as much as you want. But he found a box of belongings in the attic that belonged to his dad. And in one of them was a book of H.P. Lovecraft, short stories and whatnot. And he was like, I was in love. That would with do that. it. I, that's where he started. But he was reaching out to everything. And this is what was interesting to me. Even as a kid, he's trying, he's trying, trying, trying so, so hard. You'll see that kind of push, push, push resilience, hmm. which factors into a lot of his characters as well. You'll see most of his characters are troubled artists or struggling writers or people who are pushed to the limit. Yeah. And
0: some the crazy
1: situation happens. He said at 14 years old, he had accrued so many rejections, he nailed them up to the wall, and the nail fell off. It was too heavy, <laughs> all the rejections that he had. But his first story he got out was in a magazine in 1965. And then while in college, in Maine, he fell in love with Tabitha, who he's been married to since 1971. Oh, that's Similarly adorable. to the Stan Lee stuff, I felt yeah. like. And uh, they just... Were like that young, hard scrabble life. He was a high school teacher. Uh, they lived in a double wide trailer. He had to also work as a janitor at night and a gas pump attendant, and work at this industrial laundry uh, facility oh, in the summer. Just like grinding it out, he's
0: submitting stuff. Nothing's happening.
1: He keeps on writing, just
0: dredging that material, though just pack it away, feel it all, yeah, I mean I mean, I bet it did I bet all of that was just charged the battery that all this stuff comes out of mm-hmm. you know right after right around the corner like, yeah this is this this is it,
1: man, and he's had a couple short story sales in this time, but you can just imagine also what Tabitha's thinking, like what are we doing, you know, they were young and in love and had nothing, and that's kind of also when you bet the farm on somebody it's mm-hmm. like. Yeah, she liked Stephen King before he was Stephen King. Yeah. She liked him for who he was. The man. In spite of all the success. And that's kind of who you want to have around. So in 1973, he tried to write this short story called Carrie, and he threw it away. Oh. And she comes in, takes it out of the garbage, and is like, you got to do this. But here, let me help you. Because he was like, I don't understand. I can't write. I'm just stuck on specifically the female perspective of this, is just not working for me. So she was like, let me help you. And also, this can be a novel. This Mm. doesn't have to just be a short story. So he had written some other novels before, but this was the first one that got picked up to be published. Mm. Lo and behold, they didn't even have a phone at their house. So he got a telegram (laughs) that said he got this advance for Carrie. It was going to be published. And it was gonna be fourteen thousand dollars in today's money, which is so huge for them. Yeah. To get this. I can't this. imagine. And this is in nineteen seventy-three. So he goes on thinking Lati Dog, well, that was great. Yeah. Signs another teaching contract. Yeah. The next year, he gets another I don't think it was a telegram, but he gets information from the publisher. They're bought like a phone. <laughs> <laughs> with his for well, he actually no, he actually is I just by happenstance saw he bought a Ford Pinto with that money. Ah, Bought the old car. (laughs) A respectable purchase. (laughs) Evan approves. (laughs) Forget all the Terminator stuff we talked about. (laughs) He's back in the limelight. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. So just la-di-da, whatever. But then the company calls him again on his new phone and says, we sold the paperback rights for $2.2 million. Oh, my God. In today's money. Based on your contract, we get half, but he still got over a million dollars. Wow. Life changing Can you can you imagine wow. that working oh, as a janitor, wow. working as a high school teacher? Wow. No, man, no. And being like, oh my god, and I
0: have a- uh, that's over. that <laughs> hands
1: you a check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boom, it's done. Like walks from away. then on, from then on, he's writing full time. Wow, that's, and that's all he's ever done. From fabulous. Then. Uh, unfortunately. This is this also the start of his notorious drinking and drug
0: problem. It's oh, like the highest no, highs no, and the lowest no. lows. Charging the bank though, charging mm-hmm. the bank. And I I don't, don't want to say it like it's a great thing, but like look, he's so great. It's a good thing. I I like hearing the struggles that people yeah. go through. That is what makes the that's what makes the person. I want yeah. This is the stuff that this is where it all comes from. This mm-hmm. is it. This is the fuel of everything <laughs> that we love about this guy. Because
1: he's so open and he's so honest about it. Now, some people try to conceal their faults and their flaws. And he's like, no, this was bad. This was really bad.
0: And he harnessed it. He harnessed it into so much good. Mm-hmm.
1: That right around this time, they move, but only to southern Maine. Not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they still live in Maine. But sadly, his mom is super sick. She dies of cancer. Oh, no. And like I said, this is where he starts developing this drinking problem. He even admits that he was drunk at his mother's eulogy. Oh, my um God and a huge thing like remember how he said Carrie was was going on in 73 right after that in the autumn of 74 they moved to boulder colorado and then this is where he writes the shining this is where all this stuff is coming on so you can see it isn't even in the apex of his drinking problem yeah but he has the the but he has prescience the foresight. Yeah. to realize yeah
0: he knows it's a
1: he knows it's a problem mm-hmm. and like i said because he didn't have a father already he can look at like what
0: how could i be impacting my kids yeah, if if I don't gain control of this, I might not be there for my kids, and then if I'm not there for my kids, what becomes of my children? That is the story of The Shining, and The Shining really is a the worst case, a cautionary tale, worst case scenario about what addiction can do to you and the people around you. Mm-hmm. It, it, that that is why ultimately it is so it is so affecting and um, bizarre that he can also churn it out while he's in it. Yeah. No, there- I, but that honestly makes so much sense to me. I'm t- I, I I totally am picking up what he's putting down there. Mm-hmm. That, that absolutely makes sense to me, and that's kind of – that's the beautiful part of it is this man knows he's in the middle of the depths, uh, and he's still able to comport that mm-hmm. and put it out into the world, out into the ether. Uh, he might be screaming for help, but that is probably more than most of us do. Or have a proper outlet, like if you work at exactly. An now, insurance that company. That's yeah. very, very. That's that's very important. I think, and because, and I, but I think that's just exactly what I was saying. Is that most of us don't do it. He's just so fortunate. He had <laughs> a direct outlet to actually put this stuff into. I mm-hmm. mean, it's really hard. A lot of people are so burned out at work. They don't have time to, you know throw four hours at you know, yeah. playing music or whatever their passion is you know mm-hmm. and it's it's different for everybody everybody is so different i don't know what i don't know what goes on in your life i don't <laughs> yeah but it's so amazing that this guy did it in yeah. the middle of all of it he's putting the flags up going this is insane what i'm in the <laughs> middle of and if i don't get out of it what i'm writing will be me yeah how do i fix this in that time,
1: and I teased this a little bit before, he, he becomes friends with another writer. Um, at this point, Stephen King is going to these science fiction conventions and these comic conventions and these writing conventions and all this stuff and meeting people. And it's this guy who is notoriously not known, but I found out that he bought the first ticket to the first Comic-Con ever in 1964. Uh, and his name is George R. R. Martin. Oh no way! And so, in this time, George Martin is writing all this fantasy, all this sci-fi, all this geeky stuff. They they were at these conventions together. Oh my gosh! Hustling it out now. Now Stephen King is a little bit above George R. R. Martin. George R. R. Martin did not even get into the Game of Thrones stuff until the '90s when he was writing it, and right. then it didn't even become huge until, until people knew about the yeah. the shows in the 2000s. So, but they were friends. They played poker together. They knew each other. Uh, And in an interesting connection to another episode that we did, George R. R. Martin credits Stan Lee as his main influence over Tolkien, who did Lord of the Rings, over Shakespeare, which a lot of his stuff is Mm -hmm. similar to. He says Stan Lee was his biggest influence. And uh, I don't know if you remember, we talked about how the big thing that Stan Lee did was he had like you could write in the bullpen and and you could write letters to the editor, and he might write you back or send you an envelope yeah, with yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah. So George R. R. Martin in Fantastic Four number twenty, which Fantastic Four was the thing that Stanley gambled his whole career yes, on. Yes. George R. R. Martin is the letter to the editor in number twenty. <gasps> wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So it's all interconnected.
0: Oh god, that's um, beautiful.
1: Yeah, I will post a link in the show notes. I found. This happened very recently there was a conversation between George R. R Martin and Stephen King and it's just two friends cutting it up having a blast <laughs> uh talking about stuff I think it's in front of some college and they talk about their friendship they talk about their struggles just having a blast, and you can really see, like, oh yeah, these guys are the real deal.
0: A very, is it Patrick Stewart and Ian McMillan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're just friends on <laughs> just the same a journey. A beautiful friendship.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you can see also what a reverence George R. R. Martin has for Stephen King, but they each they each are so praiseworthy. Yeah, yeah, totally uh, different. I
0: mean, you know, just I mean, everybody, everybody's on their own game. Yeah, is I just I want I want to be on your level. Show me what's (laughs) what are you into? What's your story? What are you making? What are you doing? Show me how you see it. Mm -hmm. That's what I show me your level. Don't 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 try to get on me. Nah nah nah. Show me you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately for Stephen King, at this point, now we're going into the '80s, and he is really really. Like doing bad As Mm. far as addiction He basically said He was drunk The entire time Writing Cujo Which came out in 81 He's like I don't even remember What was going on there Uh, And this In the 80s now He's progressed into cocaine And he was basically Doing it all the time Oh no Uh, He directed a movie Based on a short story That he wrote And the movie's called Maximum Overdrive In 85 Mm -hmm. And he again Being open and candid And honest with his troubles Admits He was basically out of his mind the whole production. He was on cocaine. like He didn't know what was going on. It was like a nightmare. In the late 80s, his wife has an intervention. It gets super serious, and he quits all drugs and alcohol in the late 80s, is able to overcome it, and has not done any since. Hell yeah. Um, Luckily, right around this time, now we're back up to speed with what we've talked about before, because in 1986, this is when It comes out. Uh, and he's back off to the races because a lot of the, the works right around this time were not as revered, not as interesting. We don't even really think of them. He still has a ton of books, but like it then becomes, oh, he's back on the
0: map. Yes, this is yes, the yes. thing. So I guess can you paint a picture of, the, of what books came out, what were hits, just in this little window of time of just like between Cujo and now, what else came out? So around this time, he's doing
1: The Long Walk, The Dead Zone. Firestarter, The Running Man, kujo Kind of random stuff. Interesting. That isn't now, as well known. Know what
0: years are those?
1: That's in, the, that's in the late 70s, early 80s. Multiple a year? Yeah,
0: yeah. Interesting. He's just churning them out. He's just churning them out, yeah. He got over that one writing. It's I can't crack the female perspective. And his <laughs> wife came in, here, honey. I got, and he's just been flying (laughs) since. Basically, I got it. You fixed my writer's block. Thank you, honey. One or two books a year,
1: sometimes three. He wrote under a pen name, Bachman, because he was worried that he was writing too much. (laughs) And they found out later that that was who he was. It's
0: just hand going. He can't control it. (laughs) I can't. I just. That's not even me anymore. It's Bachman. (laughs) It's Bachman. Yeah, so it comes out.
1: A strange, scary situation in his life in 91, there's this wild guy named Eric Keene who drove 2,000 miles from Texas and hid in his house. He wasn't there. His wife got super scared, ran to the neighbor. Oh, my gosh. And this dude got arrested because he was like, like, I wrote the sequel to Misery and Stephen King – has not responded, and he needs to read it, and it needs to come out because he thought *Misery* was about his mom, who was also crazy oh. or mentally ill. And uh, but well, he should have read it and put it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, in an interesting turn of events, *Misery* is about this author who gets held hostage yeah. by a crazy fan. Yes. <laughs> so ironic that that actually happened to a uh, great but, film uh, with Kathy Bates. Uh huh. Um, yeah. And he was even saying, because Misery, he wrote around that time of his cocaine addiction, and he was like, mm. the lady in, like, Misery was cocaine. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it was holding me hostage. Yeah. And that's really what it was about. Oh, fascinating. Um, So then, 90s, he's, pr- he's, thankfully, the drugs and the alcohol is gone. He's pressing along. In 1999, he was walking along the highway, got hit by a van Flu, you know what? Thrown like twelve feet into what? the air, across into an embankment. This guy was like his dog was loose in the back seat of the van, and he was turned around, looking, wasn't paying attention. They thought they were going to have to amputate Stephen King's leg. Oh he had a broken gosh. hip, a collapsed oh lung, gosh. all this stuff. He had five operations. Find out the guy Brian Smith who hit him had eleven convictions for speeding and driving the under the influence. Oh my god! He was kind of a mess. Stephen King obviously greatly affected him in terms of writing. He ended up writing a book and he was like, this is one of the books I wasn't really happy with because I was in so much pain and I mm. had to write longhand because I couldn't write with a typewriter or a computer oh, yeah. when I was all laid up. But again, still writing.
0: Yeah. What a madman. Full body cast <laughs> just with a, just a wrist out. Leg almost amputated. Yeah.
1: <laughs> He's doing it. Um, Hooked up the machines. <laughs> yeah. Now that we come across 2000, the millennium. We see he's done all this stuff, but it's interesting to see because he is not perceived, in spite of this massive body of work and cultural influence, as anybody of any sort of literary merit, even by this point.
0: And I was telling Taylor before we got on air that we are in the presence of somebody that once he is gone and we are gone will be remembered as a great i'm just i'm convinced of it once we, we we're in the eye of the storm right now we're we're just seeing one little piece of the elephant when when he is yeah. gone and we forget how goofy he can be and you know all the just that mm-hmm. you know, he stops being a person and, and is really just cemented as an author along with all of the other greats this body of work is going to, is, is just going to be with us as long as there are books to be read. And we can say we can rag on him all we want to right now. I just think once we are all gone, yeah. he is going to be up there with all of them. Yeah, and he has even thought about this, and I'll post a link to the interview, but
1: uh, they said if you had to pick your favorite book, which I'm sure every author hates, but he said straight out the gate, it's a book called Lizzie's Story, Hmm. And that he wrote this immediate this is the book that he was writing after this happened, or a few years after this van incident the van happened, happened where he got hit, and the story is about this prolific author who has died, and the widow is left with reckoning with what had happened and it's a very personal story and he said that's his most favorite book because it's about marriage and he hadn't written about it mm. and the two things he wanted to talk about in his words one is the secret world that people build inside a marriage and the other was that even in that intimate world there's still things that we don't know about each other mm-hmm. and it's like again t- pulling from his life who he is that's what he's cool. going through and that's his favorite book oh i book. want to read
0: that now. and he's even that's thinking cool. about I never the, even heard of this yeah book. <laughs> never even Heard this (laughs) this book before, but that is yeah. I I want to go there with him. Yeah, yeah, because he's
1: thought about like you said, like his legacy. What happens when he's gone? But of course, there's like ghosts and things, you know, like that. Well, he's yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But now, like I said, he's not quite yet being taken seriously. So in 2000, and this is a book I highly recommend, which I have read called On Writing and it's a memoir it's a confessional it's a guide mm. it's him being taken seriously as a writer his daily practices how he feels about things a little bit of his memoirs he doesn't go too much this. into the drugs and the drinking there but he does acknowledge it but he doesn't make it the whole exposé in this book it's mostly about writing and how to write and what it means to be a writer and I'll the have craft to
0: pick that up. that's cool
1: yeah it's called on writing and after that point then people are like oh yeah he knows what he's talking he's not just writing goofy horror books, because in 2003, he won the National Book Award, which is for literary works. And this was super controversial. A lot of critics were like, this doesn't make any sense," cause John Updike won it. Tony Morrison, no, no, won no. It. See,
0: they're all they're they're the people I'm talking about. We can rag on them all we want. We can yeah. say he's not this, he's not that. No, 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 no. The people giving this award are, are the, the award are in the same place of mind that I am. Is that this guy? Once we are mm-hmm. out of our context, once we are less than a thought in this universe, this dude and his body of work will still be there, and yeah. he's going to be more than how, than we give him credit for now. And I think it's also because Stephen King lays it
1: down so that the common man can understand. Like uh, in Stephen King's words, he says, Most of my novels have been plain fiction for plain folks, the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and large fries from McDonald's. I am able to recognize elegant prose, but I have found it difficult to write it myself. So he's taking the mickey out of himself and saying, yeah, my work is Big Macs and fries. McDonald's is still like the biggest <laughs> fast food like
0: restaurant yeah. in the world. It serves
1: <laughs> it serves 1% of all meals every day in the world. So
0: that like the more I think about this analogy, the more I agree with it mm-hmm. and the more I'm like that's fine. It's it's just the human experience and he's just comported into these crazy stories and he's just got an amazing amount of work.
1: Yeah. And even though he is the king of horror and the king of fear and scary stuff, even in all of the stuff that he's done, I found in this interview, the interview asked him, what is he afraid of? And he Mm -hmm. was like, sure, I'm afraid of all kinds of things. I'm afraid of failing at whatever story I'm writing, that it won't come up for me or that I won't be able to finish it. Mm -hmm. This dude has, who has consistently written six pages a day for his
0: entire adult life, He's just sipping that fear. He's got to finish it. He's got to finish it yeah. and he's got to work on the next one. He's got to finish it. He's been sipping that fear as fuel and he's been pumping him out. And hes that's why he's so relatable and identifiable because he's pulling from his
1: life. He's struggling with drugs and alcohol. He's coming out of it. He's wondering what it did to his kids. He's putting all of this. He's wondering how his wife, you know, it's all coming about. We can still relate to him and be like, He's yeah. still
0: afraid about it. He's not like he's going to be the guy this time. He still doesn't know. He's still, he's living it. You know, mm-hmm. who knows what's going to turn out the next second. So, and, yeah, sharing it with all of us. He's got those anxieties to tie it back around a doctor's sleep. This is really comes the, back to that flip side of addiction. Mm-hmm. Whereas the shining is if I don't stop this, if, if I don't get a handle of this, what could it do to my family? And the other side being if I live with it and let it go, can I use it for anything? Can I help anybody with it? Yeah. How long can I ignore things? How long can I pretend something didn't happen? Yeah. Um, All of those things I've found to be very, very, very eloquent. Uh, So if you're interested in all in the movie, I would definitely suggest checking it out. Just the latest in all of these (laughs) adaptations. We're going to be doing more Stephen King. Check out the links in the show notes for all the interviews and all the research and all that stuff. Next week, we have got Ford versus Ferrari. Based on real life. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this all summer. Uh, and in the meantime, hit us up at illiterate Pod on Instagram, check out our memes, let us know what you thought of the episode, uh, anything you liked, didn't like, didn't know, let us know what you're watching, let us know what you're reading, we're interested, we're always looking for new stuff to do episodes on, yeah, so hit us up, <laughs> anyway, alright guys, we'll talk at you later, alright, bye.